Hi, and welcome to North and Chick, a podcast about food, community and well-being. I'm Hayley North. I work as a holistic chef, food educator, yoga and movement teacher. And I'm Kirsten Chick, nutritional therapist, writer and author. Together, we're passionate about nourishing our community with food, nutrition, movement and in many other ways. In our work and personal lives, we meet so many inspiring people doing incredible work for their community. So we have a wonderful lineup of guests for you. We'll be sharing our conversations alongside recipes, nutrition tips and general life tips. We'd love your feedback, so please get in touch via our social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as North and Chick. You can follow us there and also subscribe to our podcast to get an alert each time we release a new episode. Hi everyone and welcome to episode five of the North and Chick podcast with Hayley North and me Kirsten Chick. Morning Hayley. Hi Kirsten. How are you? Yeah really well really enjoying the sunshine aren't we blessed? Oh my goodness it's so lovely Um, and really enjoying these podcasts as well. I can't believe what a fantastic range of guests we have every time and we've got a long list coming up as well. So today we're going to be talking to Sarah Fernie but first of all I wanted to talk about the national food strategy recommendations that came out recently. So these are proposals that have been made to the government about our national food strategy obviously and I'm just going to read out the main recommendations. So the first one is escape the junk food cycle and protect the NHS. Now this is one that's gained a lot of press because it's the sugar and salt reformulation tax there's a lot more to it than that there's a lot they want to do with the money the revenue from that so things like launching a new eat and learn initiative for schools etc and the number two recommendation is reduce diet related inequality so that's extending eligibility for free school meals and holiday activities and the healthy start scheme and also trialing a community eat well program where gps can prescribe fruit and veg there's also make the best use of our land so recommendations around sustainable farming and creating a long-term shift in our food culture so let's start with that sugar and salt reformulation tax and using some of the revenue to get fresh fruit and vegetables to low-income families so what are your thoughts on that Hayley? Well, first, let's say how positive it is that this is being made public and brought to the table as a conversation that needs to be had and action must be taken. You know, the way we currently produce and distribute food is crazy and it can't continue. So recognition of that on any level publicly is a start. However, I'd like to be able to believe that the revenue accumulated from this suggested tax will actually end up benefiting people on a low income and help with accessibility to low cost quality fresh fruit and veg to free school meals etc however i'm skeptical about that and where this revenue will ultimately end up then with regards to the idea of a tax being placed on these products i definitely agree that something needs to be done 
many of these products shouldn't even be made anyway. They only create problems in the long term which far outweigh any immediate benefits. They don't offer any real nutritional sustenance and can be highly addictive. But you know, I would like to see the companies and the manufacturers of these products to be held more accountable. So not just fobbing the cost of this onto the consumer. I think that's a really valid point. And there's already been a backlash because this is the headline that the media has grabbed onto and people saying, you know, you can't up the cost of my mask bar or the cost of my ready meal or the cost of my cheap food that I rely on because I can't afford health food. So that swell is growing, that attitude of can't do this already. But if we look at the rest of the national food strategy and see what they want to do with that. And actually I noticed a part in there where they were saying that supermarkets and food production companies had told them they actively want to do more as a result of what they've learned in the pandemic. So maybe it is a time to be cynical once again, but or maybe it's a time to be optimistic that here we have an opportunity for change. And some at least of these big corporations are looking at this seriously at last. Yes, I really, really hope so, because every step is in the right direction towards these companies taking more responsibility for these very, very addictive ingredients that are in some of these products. Absolutely. So that's one side of thing. And the other side is redressing what's usually the cheap ready meals and refined foods that are out there and whole foods and fresh foods, which for many seem inaccessible, either because they can't afford it at all or because they could afford the cheap options but they don't have accessibility to them maybe they live in rural areas maybe they live in places like Jaywick that Cathy Burke highlighted in Money Talks recently where their whole high street is shut down they don't have any supermarkets I think they described it as the poorest town in Britain and they don't have access to cheap food Yeah, this is something that you can see countrywide. You know, everywhere you go now, the high street is disappearing and more people are relying on either huge supermarkets or mostly now it's deliveries, isn't it? Yeah, but even deliveries you have to pay for unless there's a minimum order. So it's it's becoming increasingly inaccessible. So things like um, food vouchers from the government and extending the criteria, the eligibility for fruit and vegetable vouchers for example for people on low incomes as well as the very lowest incomes I think is a great idea but we were also talking earlier weren't we about how these government initiatives on this grand scale is fantastic and if these proposals do get adopted that's a really good thing absolutely I mean we're all up for supporting any step in the direction of making fresh whole foods quality single ingredients just fresh produce fruit and veg available to everybody yeah there's two things that came out of that when we were talking earlier and one of them was that as we're learning from the amazing guests we are getting on the podcast there seem to be thousands of really small grassroots local initiatives already providing this and doing their very best to fill these gaps. Um, Sarah's going to be talking more about what she's doing later. But we hear a lot about food banks, but there's more than that as well. There's very low cost food shops and delivery services. And the other aspect as well is education. So Hayley, you're involved a lot in food education. First of all, tell us what kind of food education do you offer? So yeah, this is something that I offer and share through the workshops that I teach and hold. Sometimes that's on retreat 
sometimes that's just in different local areas but I always get quite a mixed diverse range of people and age groups who are all looking in some way to reconnect back to food to fresh produce to seasonality to home cooking again but in a way that's practical in a way that's affordable in a way that is going to fit into their lives as opposed to be this like huge burden that cooking now is going to require more hours of their day and it's going to become this heavy thing it's got to be able to slot in to people's lives and be achievable i find exactly the same with my work as a nutritional therapist i've always found that most people need some support they need some ideas especially with things like breakfasts and snacks or you know healthy lunches that they can take to work or send their kids to school with now apparently all of this is already in the national curriculum so everything that you have just described children should be getting taught by age 14 but what the national food strategy points out that actually this is absolutely not happening so they want greater accountability and more inspections going on there in schools but meanwhile again There are people like you offering food education. And as we'll hear again from Sarah later, there are lots of local initiatives springing up around that. Um, There's so much going on, isn't there? It's great for us to hear this about this report. You know, it's all really, really positive. And we absolutely hope that some of these proposals go through and we really start to see change happen. But it kind of in some ways, well, gives us some strength to draw on that the work that we've been doing over all of these years and people like us who are out there doing this in a much more independent way that it is needed and it is valid and it is valuable yeah and it goes back to episode one where we talked to Susie Cunningham and the work that she's doing with children the workshops where she's using cookery workshops as a therapeutic space so yes it's about learning to cook and engaging with food but there's so much else going on there as well it's a really nourishing healing space to be in and I think we can all get that from our food so just feeling empowered in the kitchen just being able to have those really basic ingredients to cook with as well rather than finding the kitchen a really bleak desolate depressing scary place because it's a place that reminds you that you can't afford to feed yourself you can't afford to feed your family so there's so much more than basic physical health and basic nutrients going on there so i think it's really interesting that this has come out now at this stage of the pandemic where we've had over a year now to really have it shoved in our face that there is so much food poverty in this country um, and the pandemic has worsened this but also highlighted this there have been some amazing people highlighting this for years like jack monroe who wrote cooking on a bootstrap for example um, and she has some great recipe books out there for really low-cost cooking some other really inspiring people that that have been looking at this for so many years now yeah um, I mean look at the work that Jamie Oliver's done for many yeah. many years working with schools and with parents because that's super important you've got to get the parents on board as well the education has to be in the family as well as in the school yeah this could be a really interesting time I hope that it does 
provide enough change to carry us forward. I think we're both natural cynics. <laughs> However, I think there's also room for hope here and optimism. Absolutely, we have to be optimistic and also feel strengthened by people like Sarah, who's our guest coming up very shortly, and the many, many, many people like Sarah who are out there on the ground at grassroots level doing stuff opening food banks local food hub running local workshops opening up that accessibility bridging that gap between government level and on the ground so well i want to ask you what's your opinion about the suggested food tax on salt and sugar i was asked that very question on bbc radio sussex earlier this week (laughs) there's a bit of me when you just look at the headline there's a bit of me that riles against it and says no can't just keep punishing people for their food choices in this way but actually when you look further at the report what they're trying to do is make food manufacturers more accountable and I think if they manage to do that what they haven't included and what I think be an interesting approach but maybe not a feasible approach would be to somehow limit how they pass those food costs on to the consumer but again Mm. it would make that even less likely for that to go ahead for that kind of change to happen so I don't know if that's possible so this has to be something that is alongside all of the other recommendations in the proposal around making healthier food more accessible and if that's the only way that they can get that revenue to do it then I think that's that's what they need to do it does sit very uncomfortably with me um putting a tax out there that's quite simply going to feel like a fat tax um something really interesting that came out from the predict study that came up from King's College and the Zoe app, so Tim Spector's work um, with COVID, was that they've just done the largest food survey, people's dietary habits, and they were linking that into COVID and people getting COVID and the severity of their symptoms. And they found Mm -hmm. that people on a predominantly plant-based diet with fish, that's what seemed to be the healthiest diet in terms of preventing people getting ill with COVID and also reducing the severity of symptoms. Now that was regardless of weight. So there's been this huge thing around people who are overweight, people who are obese are more likely to end up in hospital with COVID, but that only seems to be true if they are on a poor diet. Mm -hmm. If they're on a really healthy diet, that's not at all true. And there are plenty of people out there who are over what is considered to be the correct BMI who are eating really healthily. And I think that distinction really needs to be made. And there are plenty of thin and skinny people out there who are on a really poor diet Mm, as well. So these kinds of headlines, just a step away of just pointing fingers at people who are overweight. And that sits really uncomfortably with me as well. It really should be about addressing everybody's accessibility to fresh, healthy food. So that leads us perfectly into introducing our guest this week, a woman who is certainly doing all that she can to ensure that all members of her community have access to fresh produce and healthy food. Welcome to Sarah Ferney. 
Sarah is a community champion and social entrepreneur who lives and works in Brighton, East Sussex, in the UK. An artist, a teacher and a forest school leader, Sarah is passionate about reconnecting people with nature, with seasonality and the benefits of spending time outdoors. She established the Fernay Forest Club in 2016 and has worked with schools and other organisations to develop biodiversity and to plant hundreds of trees in Brighton. Fernay Forest Club creates opportunities for children and young people to have regular experiences in nature, using the forest school approach to encourage curiosity, creativity, adventure, and to develop skills and confidence along the way. Sarah also developed the Local Wild Spaces project in 2018, a collaborative project that enables people to discover, value and protect the green spaces on their doorsteps. During the first lockdown of 2020, Sarah joined forces and created the Very Local Food Hubs project in an area of East Brighton in response to local need and concern about an exasperated food poverty crisis. Sarah received the Community Champion Award from the TDC, the Trust for Developing Communities, for her work and volunteering in Bevendine. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thanks for having me. So um, our guests all nourish their communities in some way, and you quite literally help to feed yours. We'll be talking more about that later. But first of all, tell us a little bit about your community. So you live in East Brighton. What's the community like there? Thank you. I'm really glad you asked this question. Bevendine is right on the edge of Brighton, as is Morscombe. And it's an area that lots of people don't know where it is. I didn't. Initially, I had to come roaming to find it. Uh, lots of people call Bevendine like a hidden gem. It's on the edge of the Downs. Uh, so you've got amazing walkable access right onto the South Downs Way. And you've got all sorts of kind of urban woodlands and kind of natural edges to the place. So it's quite unique in that way, kind of geographically. It's a really beautiful spot with all the rolling hills behind it. Um, but it's also like one way in, one way out. It's like a cul-de-sac almost. The whole area you can cross from one side of Bevendine to Moorscombe over the hills but you have to drive in and out again if you go by road so there's lots of places that you might not have been to unless you had a very specific reason for visiting. What that's done is that's made a real quite a unique community there's lots of people that feel very connected to their community in Bevendine there's some really lovely local organisations that little tiny ones doing amazing work and basically I was invited to run a forest school in Bevendine and I was amazed by all the things I found there. So is that how you first got involved with the Bevendine Community Garden? Yes, I was looking for a site to run a forest school. I basically did my training while I was still teaching and I wanted to be able to deliver a forest school in the community and for it to be a not-for-profit thing that was that was community-led. And a friend of a friend told me about Bevendine and said, you've got to come and have a little look. We used to have a forest school here and the person has moved away and it's opposite primary school. So I was really quite drawn to that as an idea that I might be able to take kids from school straight into the woods and uh, start working with them in nature. Uh, to reconnect them to the natural world and the seasons and things that was my link in and when I got there I realized that actually there's quite an amazing kind of community around Bevendine and that actually lots of things weren't linking up people didn't know where things were they didn't know about the community garden so I got quite involved in that from the start in terms of just 
engaging local people and families and telling them about the amazing space that Bevendine Community Garden is. From there, developing the forest school to give local people, local families, opportunities to get out in nature and really enjoy it like enjoy the sessions with me but actually also go roaming and visiting at other times to not just go out when it was sunny too to go out through all weathers put on the wellies yeah to go roaming because all these spaces are available to them but it's having the confidence to access them is what I discovered was a big barrier lots of people didn't have that confidence yeah Bevendine is right on the edge of the downs so it's interesting that people aren't making or weren't making full use of that I want to follow that a little bit more but first of all back to the forest school itself so the one you've set up is called Fernie Forest Club how's that going what do you do there there may be some listeners who don't know what a forest school is so tell us a little bit more one of my favorite subjects (laughs) Um, so basically Forest School is about connecting people with nature through the seasons, getting outdoors regularly, encouraging people to really get to know a natural space well, so it becomes almost like a home from home. And that's why I wanted to develop a site where people could do that, where they could visit the woods at any time it was open to the public. But actually children could come with me and kind of start exploring the space and getting to know it really well. And I think one of the key things about Forest School is that it's a developed kind of relationship with that place over time and it's child-led. It's following the child or the young person's curiosities and what they want to learn about nature rather than, right, we're going to do this today. It's more, oh, you've noticed that insect and how else can I facilitate your interest in terms of that insect? How does it move? Where does it live? What's affecting it? And kind of really taking the time to really notice things in nature. And it's wonderful because it is a discovery for me as well as the children. It's not something that you, you have that difference in power of, you know, I'm the expert and you listen or you need to do this it's more an exploration uh, together so you develop quite deep relationships with the place and also as a community with the children and the families it's been going for quite a while now so they've sort of grown up with the experience of rural school being a kind of regular thing in their lives and they've sort of turned to the woods or go you know when things have been tough there's been people that have had bereavements or family breakups and that kind of thing and they've actually chosen to go and spend time in the woods because it's their safe space because it's nourishing and it's calming I know a lot of people have come to that through lockdown but that's kind of what I've been doing for quite a while and what other forest school leaders do is try and encourage that connection with nature for well-being. We have a bit of a different policy on risk so lots of schooling has been about reducing risk and stopping children getting into risky situations but actually with forest school it's about enabling children to assess risks for themselves and start to kind of embrace challenge so things like climbing a tree we would really encourage but we'd give them the skills to be able to climb that tree or to assess the tree in terms of whether it was healthy enough to be climbed and to make it possible for for kids to take risks in that way or work with fire and cook on the fire because there's so much enjoyment and so many benefits that come with some of those things and using tools things so things that are typically seen as kind of risky rather than shy away from them we look at what the benefits are and then scaffold and support the young person or the child to be able to access those things and to be able to do it at their own pace and to learn in their own way at the right stage for them rather than you're eight and now you can do this that has some massive and profound impacts on them confidence and on their emotional well-being, on their kind of healthy development too, actually. Fine motor skills, physical skills and ability to adapt and to be resourceful and to be able to 
to respond to risk in a healthy way rather than be terrified of it and never go near it, to be able to assess things for themselves, which makes them more rounded and healthy adults, really. And presumably <laughs> safer in the long term. Yeah. That, sounds, yeah. that all sounds really wonderful. And then from there, there's the Local World Spaces project. How did that evolve? So my work in Bevendine has been quite varied. So I got involved in the Forest Club initially. That was my motivator, I guess. And then I got really involved in the local community through working with the community garden and wanting to help the kind of engagement in that space. And food growing became part of what we did in the forest school as well, because it's all seasonal and it all links. And then just more and more, I noticed people would only go to certain places that they knew. And I talk about the dew pond over the hill or another woodlands around the corner or an orchard over the way and people wouldn't know about them or there would be like a little tiny group doing brilliant work looking after a particular space and other people wouldn't know about their work or wouldn't know what they were doing and they'd struggle for volunteers and things so sort of made sense to me to start joining things up and to start connecting the different local groups that were looking after these spaces but also to start showing people where they were because they're all free resources and it's an area of you know, social deprivation. And there's a lot of pressures on family life and on, you know, living with financial insecurity. And and lots of people were not necessarily realising the resources that were available to them on their doorsteps. So the Local Wild Spaces project I launched to just start some walks really was the first thing to start to, to show people how things connected up and potential walks that they could go on or places that they could go with their families to explore. And of course, that's all become quite relevant through the lockdowns. People have explored their local wild spaces more through that circumstance. But this project started before that and it's, it's continuing. I've been asking people, you know, what are your favourite routes or what's special about this place? Or I've been talking to sound recordists and artists and things and sort of thinking about yeah how to engage people in the great outdoors and how to get people to value and protect it. Attenborough said you can't uh, value or protect what you don't know, what you haven't experienced. And I think the Local Wild Spaces project is about that, letting people know what's there and then encouraging them to enjoy them. And then they'll start to value and protect them. And I think that the climate emergency and with all the concerns over all the different wildlife and biodiversity being is a really hot topic, basically. A big issue with the biodiversity in Britain decreasing and us losing habitats and losing species. And actually, the more we can do locally to protect those wild spaces and to increase biodiversity. And I think that starts with young people because they have all the enthusiasm. And if you can catch children and young people, then actually that starts to ripple out. Then their families get involved because the kids are going, go on, take us to that place because it's really exciting and there's that good tree to climb. Or, or if you're engaged in nature as a child, there's lots of studies that show that you're more likely to seek it out as an adult. And so I think the work starts there. Perfect. You just mentioned there, Sarah, a little bit about the lockdowns. Um, so in early 2020, when the pandemic hit and you were invited to an emergency meeting in East Brighton in Moolscombe, what happened in that meeting? It was a real... Um... A pretty amazing thing, actually. East Brighton was kind of ahead of the game in a way because there was a lot of worry about the impending lockdown and about the fact that there was existing food poverty in the area anyway, um, in Bevendine and Moorscombe. And so there was a, a meeting called with as many different local organisers and coordinators as possible from all the different local groups. Some of the schools were there, you know, the head teachers were there. 
There were Muslim chomp that worked with families in the holidays. There were, you know, church leaders and youth leaders. And luckily I was invited because I've been doing lots of different work, partnering with different organisations. So I had both the community garden hat on and I also had the forest club hat on and the local world spaces went on. I was connected in those ways. And it was just this uh, pandemic is going to affect the people in our area hugely. There's already an issue with access to food and people skipping meals in order to feed their children and financial insecurity. And then, oh my goodness, what is this pandemic going to bring in terms of job losses and in terms of, you know, not actually being able to access food? Because as I said, the area is kind of on a limb. In Bevendine, there's a couple of local shops at the end of the contact. But if you've got mobility issues, actually, there isn't a local greengrocer or um, place to go to for fresh fruit and veg, for example. You've got heavy reliance on supermarkets and, and deliveries. And of course, all of those things were really hit in the first lockdown. And there was real worry, basically. There was real worry about, okay, who's the most vulnerable in our community? How can we make sure that they're okay? You know, what can we do that's worked together? And that was the kind of tone of that meeting. And there were some brilliant things that were already sort of rippling. And as I said, we're way ahead of other areas in Brighton. The strong community connections really helped. People were were already kind of partnering and, and working together. So, for example, the Backer School were, were saying, right, you can use our kitchens to make frozen meals and things that then can be delivered out to people that, that need help in that way. The food bank uh, was was really worried because they were likely to get inundated and they had quite a small team of volunteers and there, there wasn't a food bank in Morscombe so it was looking at you know how, how to support the different areas so there was a real energy basically but the people were there really wanted to help and were up for working together and out of that meeting there were various things that happened so there's the emergency provision that actually what about for people that can pay a bit, how can we help there? Because there is literally a lack of local affordable shops and certainly there's a lack of fresh produce in the area. In terms of health and well-being, that's a, that's pretty essential. There's such inequality here. If you're on a really finite budget and you are reliant on, say, somewhere like Aldi to go and get a 45p pack of carrots, your pound bag of potatoes, and then all of a sudden there's nothing there, then you haven't got the means to then travel further or pay, you know, three times the price in the Sainsbury's around the corner because you just haven't got the money to do that. So, yeah, there was real fear and worry about people that were going to slip through the net or people that had been just about doing okay financially, but that were likely to face an income drop through everything shifting so rapidly. Yeah, so there was this talk about, well, could there be a a different sort of provision that wasn't the emergency provision? We can make sure that they're okay and and everyone will work together to help that. But could there be something else as well that was a, a pay a bit scheme and that's basically was the starting point for the very local food hubs project so I walked away from that meeting feeling quite like wow that was pretty impressive first of all and what can I do to help and I thought there were some really passionate people there and so a short while after that meeting I was shielding myself actually for my son and knew several other people that were in that position of being you know pretty able coordinators and things but in a position where actually they couldn't go out and do face-to-face work, but actually really did want to help their local community. So I started pulling people together to see if we could do some sort of fresh fruit and veg provision through the lockdowns, but also the basic essentials for making a meal so that people were okay. And so neighbours could look out for each other, basically. That was the the starting point. 
for, for anyone out there who's inspired by this and might want to do something similar, like how did you practically go about it? So it, it took a while, but I think there really was a sense of we need to act, we, we need to set this up in a way that's sustainable and we need to trial things um, because there's no point in doing something wonderfully one week and then just not being able to do it the next. It's almost a contradiction. So we'll do this in a in a consistent way and build up slowly, but at the same time, we'll be really responsive to this kind of rapidly changing scenario. Those two things were interesting, but the key thing was bringing the right people together. So I was very fortunate. I felt like I was in a good position because I was connected in the community already. And I basically pulled this people together that were really, really dynamic. And actually, they've been a wonderful team to work with. We've been all like very different in our approach. I'm quite good at the the, the big picture stuff and the being, you know, being ambitious and pulling people together and asking the questions and the communicator, I guess. Yeah, talking to people and kind of finding out what's needed. And then there were other people that were really good at the detail or at really working out processes from, you know, one step to another to just make sure that the supply chain kind of worked and things. So we set up a, a local affordable veg box project and we decided that we do a scaled pricing system so people could pay what they what they could afford so if you could afford a bit more then you paid a bit more and that helped towards the neighbor's box and if you needed it to be subsidized you just needed to tell us and then we would be able to provide it at a subsidized cost the fundraising skills were pretty key like we had that between us through working from on other organizations and that was one of my skill sets that I could bring we had meetings where we kind of looked at what our core aims were and we had people that were very experienced in terms of community group governance and things so that really did help and then we just started doing call outs for volunteers and actually I think the mutual aid network really helped because that was also something that kind of kicked off really quickly in our area where people just really wanted to help the neighbours and weren't sure how. They set up these localised WhatsApp groups. And so we started putting out adverts through those localised groups and said, you know, would you be up for helping us pack some veg boxes? And we didn't know for how long or ever, but we got some really committed volunteers that way. Without the pool of volunteers, we could not have done it. So I think we used lots of different ways to connect with people. And actually that paid off because everyone was volunteering and because everyone was responding to this really immediate need. There was a real sense of we've got to look after each other and we've got to look after the volunteers that are coming in and taking the leap of being there packing vegetables or driving it out to different households. And so we went really cautious in terms of the kind of COVID safety, in terms of trying to value our volunteers' time and make sure that actually we knew that some of the people that volunteering would have other needs or would be facing isolation if they weren't volunteering or might actually be facing food poverty themselves. So we made sure that the volunteers also had a share of the produce and that actually there was social support around what we were doing at every step so that everyone felt valued really. And that's really been quite an intrinsic part of what we've been doing and actually meant that the project has developed over a year to be a really solid community of people and actually helped connect up the community in lots of ways we didn't even imagine at the beginning. But yeah, it's that looking after people, I would say, was was key. Yeah, it sounds like you've just had an amazing response to this and that many people have benefited, like you say, from the people who work in it, from the volunteers to the actual you know, members of the community themselves. 
And we've really been trying to make sure that people's voices get heard all along the way too. Initially, it was a committee of six of us. And actually, we've been opening that out and we've got a steering group. So trying to get more of the local community involved in some of the decision making too. So we've done like lots of informal feedback that has shaped our services. But now we're trying to get better systems for people being able to go actually there's this need right here and I've got this idea about how to do it and we're trying to find ways that people can feed those ideas in and that affect what we're doing. So what are your next steps for the very local food hubs because obviously we're not in lockdown at the moment and things are moving forwards so how are things evolving for you? So it's been an ongoing kind of journey. So we literally asked the question in a customer sort of survey, do you think we're needed beyond the pandemic? People really valued the ability to be able to help their neighbours and, and pay at a price they could afford. So scaled pricing, but also to be able to support more sustainable food seemed to be something that people really cared about. And within the committee initially, we really weren't sure, you know, do we need to get as much food as possible to feed bellies to, to fill people up? Or does it need to be as locally produced as possible? And there's this sort of tightrope between those two things because so much of the food that people are usually buying is imported, has travelled a long way. And this disconnection from where it's grown and how it's grown. And one of the things that people seem to really respond to was the fact that they liked that the veg was more locally sourced when we were able to do that. And we've worked with different partners, including the Food Partnership has been really helpful in supporting us. And we've been able to trial things like try to make it as sustainable as possible, but also keep it affordable, which is quite a challenge. Uh, so in terms of where we're going, some of those things are quite complex to do kind of long term. You can do them in the short term and it's trying to work towards more sustainable food systems and empowering people around food longer term is where we're headed. So unanimously, really, from our survey, we got a huge response that said, actually, this isn't just needed in the pandemic, that actually we would like support around food long term because there are existing issues anyway. We like to access seasonal food uh, and to know where it's come from. But we also really like kind of sharing ideas about um, what to do with that veg and how to cook it. And so we've started to develop those things like food confidence in terms of starting conversations around how to use awkward vegetables or how to make things more appealing and how to cook simple, fresh, healthy meals on a real budget. Those kinds of conversations, we've done cooking workshops and things to pilot those ideas and they've been really popular and they've been using different local spaces. So we're going to try and continue that. Yeah, and the very local food hub is doing much more than food deliveries now, aren't you? People really do want to know how to grow their own food and be a bit more kind of self-reliant, but the confidence isn't there. And that's where spaces like the Community Garden in Bevendine can help and the Mordecai Forest Garden. But there are a lot of spaces that are not used well and not used for food growing. And actually, for me personally, that seems like a huge priority to start getting more local food growing in these areas to help local resilience in times of crisis and to also start to reconnect people with their food and where it comes from, to share the risks and share the harvests and, and share the skills. So we're looking to develop some projects that way, basically, to help people with growing their own food. We're quite excited because we're, we're pitching at the moment to do like a front gardens project where we'll be able to enable people to grow food on their doorstep and to work with their neighbours to grow fruit and vegetables and to share crops and share kind of ideas around that. 
but also share the risks. Um, if your carrots don't grow, then actually you're connected with three other people down your street that actually were growing carrots too. And maybe you can share the produce if there's enough, that kind of thing. That sounds brilliant. And you had a pilot course recently, didn't you? How did that go? So that went really well. We just thought we'd start small with a growing workshop. So we were doing what you can grow on your windowsill. So say you're in a flat. What can you grow? You know, microgreens and uh, pea shoots and things, you know, herbs and things like that. And we were amazed at the response. But the whole way through, we've been working in partnership with all the different local food organisations. And there's been new ones that have popped up. So one of them is the Moscow Community Market that's at St George's. And so we ran some of these growing workshops outside the community market. So people were going to do their shopping and then they'd come out and they'd see us. And we would chat to them about, you know, whether they're growing food already, what they're difficulties have been whether they're interested in it and we basically equipped people to just try it to just try it on their windowsills and then we were back the following week doing the next bit which was growing some baby leaf salads and things and some herbs and we were getting amazing responses just people like really happy to connect around growing food and sort of talking about the loneliness that has been present through this period but also the kind of the simple joy of actually it's sprouting and I can eat it that's brilliant but also you know talking about things like how do you get a small amount of compost if you haven't got a vehicle and you live three miles or four miles or five miles from the nearest place and how ethical is that compost is the other thing you know is it peat free and actually which seeds should I try if I've never tried any so having those sorts of conversations were really good So that was food growing workshops we started and we've actually got a couple more this week to do with cultivating different garden herbs from cuttings, doing your own compost and plant feeds and things. So they're just a start, but we're looking to equip and resource people to be able to grow their own food in planters from the autumn actually so that was let's see how this feels and what the take up is like see what the barriers to growing currently are and it does seem to be around resources and money but also confidence and sometimes it's not about being able to afford it it's just literally knowing what's the right thing to get for this or or what can I get away with not doing or doing you know how fussy do I need to be about growing this what's going to improve my chance of success so it's connecting local experts with people that want to know this stuff yeah, so that's one side. And then the other is that we're, we're doing some cooking workshops. Again, we were thinking about what do people want to know? Because when we were running stalls selling our veg boxes and things, people would often ask us, oh, I've got a, another cauliflower this week. What, what shall I do with it? Or what is this green thing in this box? You know, and we'd have these great conversations about different types of kale or some of those awkward vegetables or just stepping outside of your comfort zone re-cooking and like even where did you learn to cook you know there isn't a lot of cooking education going on in schools and if family doesn't contain the confident cook then where do you learn well this has just come up did you see the national food strategy report that came out last week they're proposing a snack tax and that's what everyone's picked up on but actually there's so much in the report around food education and how that's really key and how that's missing in schools at the moment and getting sensory food education into primary schools and things like that. So there's this huge gap that's been officially recognised now, but it sounds like you're already filling that gap. You're already meeting those needs and going one step further as well with the food growing workshops. I mean, it's not specific to where we are. I'm focused on Bevendine and Roscombe because I know the needs of the community here through through living here and sharing some of those needs. But there's all sorts of things happening all over the country in terms of just grassroots projects. People going, you know, this is crazy. We need to be more connected to where our food comes from and we need these skills. 
and they're lost. They're missing from the current education system and they're, they're so crucial to health and well-being. And there's all sorts of projects across Brighton. The Real Junk Food Project have been doing really great things around food waste and around pay what you can afford meals and things. And there's the Incredible Edibles project Mm -hmm. don't know whether you've come across that getting you know edible classrooms and you've been doing have you you've been doing pop-up workshops as well haven't you to make them more accessible yeah so we were thinking you know one of the things is if you run things at community centers you'll only catch some people you know it's in in the name for us we've been talking about things being very local and I think that's really key like bring it to people's doorsteps bring it to people's streets rather than expecting them to take the leap and go to a community centre that they don't really know or trust there needs to be kind of some connection so yeah we've been talking about doing these conversation and taster pop-up events is what we've started with where we're we're literally working with community chefs to go okay People would really like to know interesting things that you can do with this vegetable, for example, or what can you make in terms of a simple meal? If you've only got carrots and potatoes in your cupboard, you know, like, what can you do? (laughs) And then their challenge is to make it interesting and then start to have conversations with people about yeah, what's important to them and how they might be able to make it go further or how to make it more tasty or do, do kind of healthy swaps, that kind of thing, or how to get the kids to eat veg. There's lots of conversations to be had. So we've been doing these pop-up events and we're, we're thinking that we should just go out to the estate greens, basically, rather than focus in on the community centres, actually have stalls at the end of people's streets or on the estate greens and actually get into those sorts of conversations in the parks and in the, the places where people are, meet them where they're at, rather than trying to lure them in for a cooking workshop that is just a one-hit wonder. Yeah, it's quite exciting. And we've started a food forum and things as well to get people kind of sharing their skills and ideas because we know that the knowledge is there in the community. It's just about linking things up as well. Yeah, and giving people confidence uh, to, to share what they do know and to also say, hey, I don't know about this and can you help? How do you make sure that you've got the self-care that you need in place? So, yeah, that's a really good question. I do have to work on the self-care side of things because I get really enthusiastic and have multiple projects, as you've heard. And I've been doing some training as part of the different funding that we've been getting. It's been really helpful, actually. I've been trying to kind of access different levels of support. So peer support, very definitely. It's been really nice working with other local organisers and being able to share some of the challenges to be able to talk things through. But I also really noticed because I'm my background, as we've sort of talked about already, is working outdoors and with people. and of course through the lockdowns and things, it was very different. It was a lot of kind of working on screens, being inside a lot. And I actually got to a point where I was thinking, this is crazy. This isn't good for me to be doing so much admin and to be getting so little time outdoors. (laughs) So I had to start actively like putting it back in, putting the outdoor time back in. So whenever I had a Zoom meeting, I just factor in going for a walk straight away after it, up the hill and around the corner. (laughs) And I got a few different strategies from kind of talking to other community organisers and things just in terms of yeah ways to help yourself but I do always come back to being in nature is the most grounding thing that you can do and this is really good for calming the thoughts and the body and the mind and so I've started to use a bullet journal which helps and um, I do actually track the time I spend outdoors in that so lots of people track things like the diet or the sleep or whatever but I really I do like a little bar like you have a battery bar on a laptop that tells you how much battery there is I do one that's how much time outside I've spent and I try and make sure that's at least a bit in every day 
And if there isn't, if I can see over a week there's been a deficit of that, then actually I really do need to plan in a big hike at the weekend or I really need to put in a good couple of hours outside and and I can prioritise that so that, yeah, I guess that's something that I've been doing for my own well-being. But I think connecting with people is good for me. Eating well and getting enough sleep, you know, the basics, just trying to keep steady rhythms on those things definitely helps. Great. So with your kind of nature tracker, is that an app that you're using or is that just a system that you've created yourself? No, it's just it's very manual. It's literally I draw a bar in my planner, uh, in my diary and I colour it in. (laughs) So it's a little nature graph that I draw to show if it's full up. I've had loads of nature time. It's half full. I've only had a bit. (laughs) It's yeah, it's just a visual representation of how much how much time outside I've spent. Um, yeah, it's a great idea. So <laughs> do you have any tips for anybody out there who might be listening who wants to get involved or set up similar community projects in their area? Well, I think tips for anyone wanting to get involved, they can definitely, you know, if they're in Brighton, they're welcome to contact me. I would say if you don't already uh, know the Brighton and Hove Food Partnership, they've got all sorts of different kind of volunteering opportunities and things. And they do help to connect up their local projects around food provision specifically. But in terms of setting up your own thing, I think the key thing is work out what exists already in your area and also see how you can support them, but also be mindful that there might be a niche for you that sometimes things just need to be instigated. A lot of the time people can see what the needs are, but they're just worried about taking that first step or being overwhelmed by trying to solve the whole problem. And actually you can start quite small. I guess that's one of my strengths is that I am an instigator. I'm somebody that goes, okay, well, why not? Let's try it and see what happens. And um, But actually if you can connect with other people that are similarly motivated in your community then amazing stuff can happen and it's like it's really made my sense of community deeper and richer I think that it's had all sorts of ripples you know I can see people thriving in ways that maybe they weren't just through getting involved and feeling like they can make a difference you know in their local community and so there's a real power to that and I would encourage you to have a go and to see where you might be needed if something doesn't exist already to just start thinking well how can I try how can I just test this idea thank you that is so inspiring and I'm sure that will help motivate others and assure them things are possible so one thing we ask all of our guests is if you would please share a food memory with us I've got a few I could share but I'll share one that was seasonal the elderflower season has just it's just passed now but basically I've been trying to make elderflower cordial and elderflower champagne over the years. And sometimes when it's supposed to be cordial, it turns into champagne and vice versa. Sometimes the champagne doesn't doesn't work. But basically you go out on a beautiful sunny morning or a sunny afternoon and pick the elderflowers. And I've been doing that locally for quite a while. You don't pick them after rain or when they're dewy because they smell like wee. So you definitely don't want to make cordial that way. And then you just need some lemons and some sugar and you you make a sugar syrup and then soak the elderflower in the syrup overnight. And then you can bottle it, basically. And so I've done that uh, a few times. And it's a real joy of the coming of the summer, spotting the elderflower unfolding, basking in in the sunlight. Yeah, it's just beautiful. And there's quite a strong scent to it. 
So I started to make some some um, champagne, but what I didn't realise was that because we'd stored it on the top of the fridge, every time the, the uh, fridge door shut, it shook the elderflower champagne that was brewing. This kind of basically built up pressure in the champagne. And so we were getting quite excited in preparation for our wedding and we were having like an outdoorsy wedding and we thought it'd be lovely to have elderflower champagne at it. And um, basically this pressure was building and building and building in the bottle of champagne that I was brewing. And every time I shut the door, it added to that pressure. And then one night I heard the most almighty bang in my kitchen. And basically the the lid had uh, like blown off this bottle of elderflower champagne and it actually put a dent in the ceiling in the kitchen I was so lucky that nobody else was in the kitchen at the time and it it sprayed my entire kitchen with elderflower champagne (laughs) so now every time I have elderflower champagne I think of this saturated kitchen and the build-up to my wedding it was a a sticky beautiful mess Luckily, I've learned not to store it on top of a fridge now. That is a good point. <laughs> Was there any left for the wedding or did you start from scratch? What happened? Uh, I think we restarted. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. It's just been a joy talking to you, Sarah. It really has. Such a pleasure. Thank you so much for today. Thank you very much for having me and for yeah for the work that you're doing in terms of um, highlighting all these amazing projects. It's really exciting. And we started off by saying about how our guests always nourish their communities. And I think you really embody how nourishing your community with food projects nourishes them in so many other ways as well, not just physically with nutrients, but with joy, with connection, with support, mental health, emotional benefits as well. So it's really wonderful what you're doing. It's it's really nice to be a part of that and to see how the different projects are joining up. There's all sorts of different local spaces that are now talking about planting fruit trees and and fruit bushes and things. And that then builds scope for, for people, you know, sharing harvest and coming together to do fruit picking and getting kids involved in when things are ready and and when things are to be picked and rather than flying in our our strawberries or raspberries or trying things like gooseberries that lots of kids might not have tried just having them on the doorstep seems to make loads of sense to me so it's really exciting that that is all coming together that there's a lot of people that are in in support of these projects uh, making it happen brilliant so, so we'll put all your links up so if anybody's listening and wants to find out more about the projects that Sarah's involved with have a look at the the website and our social media and we'll be putting the links up there. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Okay, so your nutrition tip for this month is all about protein. So self-care, as we know, is absolutely if you're on a low budget and really stressed out. And that's usually the time when self-care goes out of the window, but it's when we really need it most. We need it to support energy levels, to support your immune system and your general stress resilience so you can keep bouncing back and keep your head above water. And for all of this, one of the key nutrients that you need is protein. Now, if you eat meat, fish, eggs, dairy, all of the animal-derived proteins – then you really don't need a lot. And it's better to try and source some good quality products 
and just have a really small amount. So you can eke it out in a casserole or a stir fry with plenty of veg, maybe mix it with some beans or lentils, or maybe just one egg in some breakfast pancakes that can go a long way, perhaps with some berries and some yogurt, something like that. And in fact, protein at breakfast usually helps to keep your energy, your focus and your mood much more stable too. So it's really good to think about protein at breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But like I say, you don't really need a lot. If you eat very little meat or no meat and other animal proteins, then your main protein sources are going to be beans, lentils, chickpeas and other peas, nuts and seeds. Now, these all contain different types and levels of amino acids. Amino acids are the building blocks of protein. So you need variety. Really mix it up. Maybe put seeds on your breakfast, maybe some beans in your lunch, maybe some lentils in your dinner, that kind of thing. Now, tofu and tempeh and other soya products are a bit like animal proteins in that they have that perfect blend of amino acids that humans need just by themselves. But you don't want to just be having tofu all of the time. So really think about mixing it up. Now, whatever you eat, a little bit of protein at every meal can really make such a difference to both your physical and mental well-being. So have a little think about the kind of habits that you've got with your eating, especially looking at breakfast and lunch, and just make sure there's a little bit of good quality protein in there from at least one of those sources. So Hayley, what's your tip for us this month? So yes, I do have a recipe to share with you. All this talk of growing our own and starting with something as simple as growing herbs on a windowsill at home, I'm going to share a pesto recipe. Pesto is so easy to make. All you need is your fresh herbs. So you can use for that traditionally it's basil, but you could also use parsley, you could use coriander. Um, Sometimes I use a combination of parsley and coriander or parsley and basil. You could also use carrot tops and you could also use carrot tops as well. But traditionally it's basil and traditionally it's also pine nuts. However, pine nuts are incredibly expensive. So I often use instead pumpkin seeds. So whether you're using pine nuts or pumpkin seeds or indeed sunflower seeds, you dry toast them in the pan until they start to pop and they're just going brown. Have the heat on quite low because these tend to burn quite quickly. You could actually also use cashew nuts, almonds or walnuts instead of the seeds. Once your seeds or nuts are dry toasted, then add them to a food processor along with some garlic, a little bit of lemon juice, some salt and pepper, and just a little bit of olive oil and all of your herbs. So your basil or your parsley and coriander or carrot tops. And you basically pulse this together. So grind until it becomes into like a rough paste. You can make it much smoother. You could even add a little bit of water if you wish to and just bring this together. Personally, I like mine quite rough and rustic. Now you can add cheese, traditionally it's Parmesan or Pecorino. And I suggest really you don't need too much cheese. Some people add a lot of cheese to their pesto, but actually I find also in particular if you're on a budget, you don't really need that much cheese. So your biggest ratio is the herbs, then it's your seeds, 
and then it's your cheese, your garlic, your lemon juice, your salt, your pepper. And basically grind it all together until you get a rough or a very smooth paste, whichever you prefer. Have a little taste and adjust the seasoning as you wish. Now add this to a glass jar and put over the top of it, once it's in your jar or your container, a little bit more olive oil so the top is covered in oil. And this will stay good in your fridge for at least a week. Pesto is another one of those items, isn't it, that we often buy ready-made when in fact it's incredibly easy to make ourselves and then we know exactly what's gone into it. And if you're growing your own herbs on your windowsill, then even better. We're increasing that connection between us and our food even further. And we hope you've enjoyed this month's episode. Thank you for joining us. Thanks to Sarah Ferney for joining us and sharing her story. And see you next month. So if you enjoyed that, please subscribe to our North and Chick podcast. And also follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter as North and Chick. All lowercase, no spaces.